Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. This year's called Greater There. Everybody say Greater Than. Uh, come on, like the Niners and the Raiders are both good this year. Everybody say Greater Than. It's greater than, it's greater than. There's this uh, book of the Bible called Colossians. And, and sometimes when you look at the Bible, I, I, I don't know if you were like me. When I first tried to look at the Bible as a young person, I was like, this looks confusing. It's a bunch of weird people with weird names and it makes no sense. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I turn my life to Jesus and it seems like this. I read the Bible, you know, God gave life to it and I loved it. And I, I became a student of the Bible and just loved teaching it. And so when you look at the Bible, I want you to know it's not nearly as confusing as it may first look. And when you think about your Bible, it's broken into two big parts. It's what we kind of call the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's, um, it's all old, just so you know, it's all it's all old. Like the last thing was written 2000 years ago. It's all old. So, um, but, but there was this, there was this original Jewish document, this, 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 they call it the Tanakh and it was the Jewish Bible. And then of course Jesus comes along and then the New Testament is really the Jesus story and who he was and what he did and his death and burial and resurrection. And then it leads into like, well, man, how did this thing called the church begin? And the book of Acts launches this into like the history and the starting point of the church. But then you get into some unique little books where Different apostles, or basically guys that were close to Jesus or knew Jesus, they start writing these letters to churches. And one of the letters that the apostle Paul wrote was to a church in Coloss, which is modern day Turkey. Right? So you gotta think, Paul is this missionary traveling around the world. He eventually gets arrested and thrown in prison. And so this guy named Epaphras goes to visit Paul while in prison. It's like, hey, I got this church and they're tripping. And I need you to fix them. You ever do that? You go to somebody about your kid. You're like, my kid's tripping. I need you to fix them. And that's kind of what Epaphras does. He goes, I need you to write a letter because here's what we as a church are struggling with. And if you could write us a letter, then that would just be so awesome because it would encourage and challenge and help us. And so that's what the book of Colossians is. It's just a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the church of Coloss. And they're a church that has issues and they're a church that lives in a weird culture and they're a church that, you know, has a pastor and a people and they're trying to figure this thing out. They're trying to walk with Jesus. And this is what the apostle Paul tells them. Now, if you're here last week or you want to go, go watch online, he opens with this idea of, Hey, before I challenge you, before I encourage you, before I teach you, before I do anything else, here's what I really want to do. I want to pray for you. And not like one of those weird Christians where they're like, Hey, I'm going to pray for you. But then you're like, I don't think they really prayed for me. You ever feel like that? Like Christians just say that stuff a lot. Like, yeah, I'll pray for you. I'm like, I don't think you are. I think you just said that. Or they do it in like a real condescending, judgy way. Like, "Mm, I'll pray for you. And so that's not what he's doing. He actually really does pray for him. And we know that because he writes the prayer in the book. He goes, let me pray for you. And so if you were not here last week, go, go, go catch up. That was a really, really good one. So today though, after he prays for him. So, so if week one, Paul would say, Hey, let me pray for you. But today what we'll look at, cause this is, this is really is week one is let me pray for you. But week two, what we'll talk about today is this is let me tell you about God. Because what they're struggling with and what they're dealing with is very unique to them, but it's not, it's not something that we've never run into. See, how you view God is of the utmost importance because, well, how you view God kind of determines how you end up viewing yourself 
And that can be good or bad. It determines how you view other people around you. It determines how you view your circumstances. It just kind of messes up everything or helps everything. So how you see God is so important. Or A.W. Tozer said it like this, and he just said it really, really cool. So I'll read what he said. He said that the most portentous fact, that's old school fancy word, word of the day level stuff, portentous. The most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Or you could say it like this, you become the God you worship. And so if you've got a wrong view of God or a warped view of God or some kind of just just weird idea of God, it will mess with you. It'll change the way that you approach God, think about God, talk to God. It'll, It'll change, again, how you see the world around you and how you treat other people. It has such huge ramifications. And so you, you could say it like this, like we believe that we are made in the image of God. So we're created in the image of God, but what happens is that the image of God that we have ends up creating us. And so we want to be really, really careful. Like, how do I see God? Like, how do I view God? Now for the Colossians, here's what they were running into. So for the Colossians, one of the things that they were doing was they were doing Jesus plus other stuff. Right? So you gotta remember, like, they lived in a pagan culture where they had all the Greek gods and all the Roman gods and they had the old gods and the new gods and they had gods everywhere, right? Because they didn't know they were trying to figure it all out. And so what they were real easy to do was to say, oh, there's all these gods and Jesus is just one of them. So it's Jesus plus all this other stuff. Now, most of us, that's not, that's not what we deal with. We're not dealing with like a pantheon of Greek gods. We kind of figured out that that's not how the universe actually works, but we still kind of do that sometimes. Do you ever do the, you ever do Jesus plus other stuff or it's, I'll just try everything that I can. And then when all else fails, I'll turn to Jesus. We do that. So it's just Jesus plus other stuff. It's Jesus plus my horoscope, Jesus plus a self-help book, Jesus plus like, I just, just, I'll try everything just, and then I'll throw Jesus on top of it. So Jesus plus other stuff. Or here's, here's the other thing that they ran into is they're just, they had a personal version of Jesus. You don't have one of those, do you? See, some of us have a personal version of Jesus. They certainly did. Now, again, you got to remember where they lived and what time they lived in, right? So they were surrounded by paganism and Judaism and Gnosticism and mysticism and isms and all kinds of stuff. And so what they did was is they just had this weird kind of view of Jesus and they didn't know what to make of him. And so that's what they were struggling with. Now, again, you don't, I mean, we don't deal with that. We're 21st century Americans and we're really smart now. So we don't, we don't do this anymore. We don't have a personal version of Jesus, do we? And the answer is yes, you do. You need to be incredibly aware that you have a biased view of Jesus. You have a biased view of who God is. Most of you think um, when you picture God, that God is like an old white bearded man. Okay. That's Greek. That's not real. Okay. That's, that's like Zeus figures, right? We kind of made that up in our head. Others of us, again, we have our own view and our own picture of what we think Jesus looks like. And again, Jesus is, depending on what church you grew up in, there was a picture of Jesus on the wall and he usually was a white guy with brown hair and blue eyes. But see, I, I started going to a bunch of black churches and I realized, nope, Jesus was black. And so, cause that's, cause that, and then I just realized when I got older, I'm like, well, actually Jesus was Jewish. So he was probably a five foot six, Middle Eastern looking man with little curly things on his head. So anyway, y'all got your pictures of Jesus. And here's what you need to know. Your picture of Jesus is in part based on your church upbringing, right? 
Like depending on what kind of church you grew up in, you have shaped your version or your vision or your picture of what God is like and what Jesus was like. And that's, that's how you do it. For some of you, your, your image is based on your personality. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but you don't see the world the way that it is. You see the world the way that you are. And you see God the way that you are. So you kind of filter your God image through your personality. So be, just be, be careful. Some of you filter your God image through your dad. And that could be good or bad. Like really bad. That could, that could be awful. And so you, you have to be really, really careful because what ends up happening is, is you end up with your own version of God. And so the question I have to ask you is how do you see God? Because some of you have drill sergeant God. Like God is very strict about his rules. He's very strict about his rights and wrongs. He's very strict and you need to follow the rules or else. And you have drill sergeant God. Here's, here's another one. You have guilt God. Now there's some, there's some churches and Christian religions and, and denominations that are really, really good at this. Well, if you were really a Christian, well, if you really loved God, and they just lay it on you, man. It's like, wow, depending, again, every denomination's got its own kind of flow. I don't want to, I don't want to dime anybody out, but some of y'all know what I'm talking. So anyway, here's another one, not just guilt God, distant God. Like I believe that God, God's out there, but I have kind of a deistic view of God. Like he's a creator. He spins the world into orbit and says, good luck with that. We'll see you later. I'm powerful, but I don't care that much. Have fun with that. Hope it turns out okay. I'll be over here creating other things. I, I don't know. There's another version of God. He's emo God. Some of y'all think Jesus was a hippie and just wore Birkenstocks and, and stocks and loved everybody and everything's just peace and love and there's emo God or there's just everything is a flower and it's beautiful and there's a rainbow and there's a there's emo. Have y'all ever heard of emo God? Is that some of y'all? Some anyway. Let's keep going. On-demand God. Again, depending on what kind of church you grew up in, God is on-demand. Your faith will activate God, and he will heal, he will answer, he will move, he will do, and he will do it now, and that's just the way it goes. And so God is always there to do things for you. Like God is the divine butler, he's the cosmic vending machine, I pull levers, I pray magical prayers, and then God just does stuff. Yeah, you, we made this up. This is not real. Okay, let's just keep going. There's a angry God. God's just angry. Again, big White man with a beard, and that bearded man is holding a thunderbolt. And if you mess up, it's over. God is going to get you. Some of y'all live with angry God. Here's another one. This is what we deal with today. You have Republican God. You are convinced that if Jesus were walking around today, that he would be a part of the Republican Party. And he he agrees with all of your views, or everybody that's not on board with this one, you have, you're just a, Jesus was a Democrat. Bless God. I, and so you have, you're convinced that Jesus was, would be just like you. You're convinced that Jesus would think like you think because you're purely logical and biblical and spiritual and right about everything. We just got real up in here today. I don't even know why I picked this sermon. Why did I do this? Let's talk about something else. Look, all I'm saying is be incredibly careful. You do not have God completely figured out. You are too small and he is too big. And be really, really careful not to put your version on Jesus and to put your spin and to lock God in a box and confine him to this little thing, this little idea, or to just imprint your personality in your church. Can we just let God be God and let, let, let's let God define who God is. 
and let me stop defining who God is and just be really, really careful. And so the reason why the apostle Paul starts with this idea is let me tell you about God because y'all have put your own personal version, your own perception on him. Y'all have mangled him and mixed him with all kinds of other stuff. And he goes, let me just tell you about God. And then he writes this poem. This is brilliant and beautiful. Watch this. So Colossians one verse 15 says this. Because he's going to like correct a lot of stuff later or challenge or encourage a lot of stuff. Every, but everything really hinges from this point right here in the book of Colossians. So it says this. He goes, the son is the image of the invisible God. So again, God is not an old white man with a beard. Why? Because God's invisible. So God doesn't look like God's spirit. But the son, he's actually the image of that invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. I'll explain some of this stuff in a minute. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. That sounds weird. I'll explain that. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus, he would reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. Now, that is a lot to be said, but this is what the apostle Paul is about to do. He's about to say, look, you put your personal version of Jesus. They were battling something called Gnosticism. Again, it was kind of like um, legal Judaism, and then it was mysticism, and then it was paganism, and and they just blended it all together and made up a bunch of stuff. They called it Gnosticism because it was Gnosticism just means to know. So they always like you need the knowledge. You need not you need the knowledge. And they did not think that Jesus was God. They thought he was an angel or some type of created being and he was this intermediary person between us and God and everybody could kind of get, you can see some like cult groups had this idea. You can kind of get to be like Jesus and so Jesus is special but he's not God and he's just this in-between thing. And Paul's like, what? No, 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 let's back this train up. Let me correct everything out of the gate. It is Jesus. And he starts off with these things, but I'm going to, I'm going to walk you through five big ideas that come out of this poem, right? There's five big revelations that the apostle Paul dishes out. Now there's a lot to be said, but five big, really, really big ideas. Number one is this, is he goes this, he goes, Jesus is God in a body. Like you need to know that like God is spirit. But what happened was, is that God was like, I'm, I'm going to come to earth so that they could see me so that, that I could model so that I could come and live and die. And eventually I'll be sacrificed on their behalf. And again, I'll rise from the dead to prove to them. And so he goes, this is, this is what it looks like. And so Jesus is God in a body. Some of you guys, when you look at the old Testament, you think God is angry because he smites people in the old Testament. And you think Jesus shows up and Jesus is really, really nice. Cause he has the children come and he does a little Bible studies. He's really, really cute. And you're like, Jesus is like the nice part of God. And the old Testament God was really, really angry. And that's not true. That couldn't, couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus is the perfect image and the perfect reflection of who God is. If you ever wanted to know what God was like, just look at Jesus because he is the image. Isn't that what the apostle Paul says? He is the image of the invisible God. He's God in a body. That is so important that you really kind of understand that. Because again, you don't want to put your version of God and stick that on there. Let Jesus define for you who God is. Because when you look at the life of Jesus, you see some incredible things. Like again, you you think the Old Testament God's angry. And I'm telling you, he's not. And I'm telling you, Jesus shows up. And Jesus does some 
unbelievably great things. Like Jesus, Jesus is a bit of a rule breaker. Like you couldn't touch lepers. You'd be made unclean. He's like, because Jesus is a healer. Jesus wants to heal people. Like Jesus is incredibly kind. Like he would find people that like nobody wanted to hang out with him. Like, man, let me hang out with you. He found this guy named Matthew who was a tax collector and Zacchaeus who was a tax collector. And he goes, I'm coming to your house and we're doing a dinner party. I mean, so Jesus was this kind and inclusive person. He was trying to draw people closer to God. He was trying to show people what God was like. He was really trying to show people the love of God even. And so he keeps doing all these things. Like there's this one time where these guys bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus and he goes, hey, you're healed and you're in. And they're like, why does he get in? He goes, because their friends have such incredible faith. And everybody's like, you can't do that. And it's just like, well, I'm God. I can do whatever I want. Don't tell me who I can be kind to and who I can't be kind to is what he was in essence saying. And the only people that he gets mad at are arrogant, prideful, religious people. I want you to think about that. A lot of There was a Roman centurion. Now, the fact that he worked for Rome, he probably did some bad things. But when the Roman came to Jesus and said, my son is sick and he's going to die. Will you help me? He goes, yeah, let's go right now. He was all about, he, this guy wasn't a Jew. He didn't have a covenant with God. He wasn't right with God in any type of traditional sense. And Jesus is like, yes, I'm coming to your house. Let's heal the kid. Let's help people. And everybody was confused and it didn't make any sense. I'm just, I'm just telling you, be careful. Be careful that you don't have all of your little doctrines and your little preconceived notions about God because God actually, if you really walk through scripture, God obliterates so many of our religious ideas. Again, the only people he gets mad at are religious people who are so prideful and arrogant that they think that their way is so precise and so right and everybody else is so wrong. And he goes, you guys have missed the point. So just be careful again that, that if we want to look and know who God is, we look to Jesus. That's the most important thing that we can do because Jesus is God in a body. Number two is this, and he uses this phrase twice in the poem. He goes, Jesus is the firstborn. Everybody say firstborn. Now again, he says he's the firstborn um, of all creation, and then he's the firstborn among the dead. Now, here's what you need to know about. Like there, were, there was like a cult group that was like, oh, look, see, that proves that Jesus was born, and so therefore he wasn't God in the beginning. It goes, that's not what that means. Quit reading the Bible like an American. You gotta read the Bible like a Hebrew, Right? So you have to ask, well, what did that mean to them? What did it mean to be a firstborn? It had nothing to do with him being born. It had to do with the fact that, like, the firstborn in Jewish culture was responsible for the family. He was actually, and when you look in Jewish culture, the firstborn in, in, in how they did things is they would sacrifice the firstborn animal to redeem the rest. And you see Jesus as the firstborn that was sacrificed to redeem the rest and then you see this idea also that in all throughout scripture, you see this idea of where the firstborn son always got judgment and then the secondborn sons always got mercy. Do you know what that means? That means Jesus took your judgment so that you could get mercy. And so when they called Jesus the firstborn, they were like, oh, this is awesome. He's the firstborn of the dead, meaning he conquered death. He's the firstborn over all creation, meaning he's in charge over all creation. He's in charge of the church. He's in charge of my life. Like he's the firstborn who took all the judgment and all the punishment so that I could take all the grace and all the mercy. And so Jesus is the firstborn. Number three is this. He introduces this idea that Jesus is the creator. Let me, let me read it for you again. It says this. It says that, for in him, all things were created in heaven and earth. And then it talks about all things have been created through him and for him. 
So Jesus is the creator. And what Paul's doing is, is that Paul's trying to link you to this idea that Jesus is God and was God from the beginning. And he's so far into the beginning that he was there at creation. Now, again, if you're a person that ever read the Bible, you're like, but wait a minute, Jesus was not in Genesis. But what's strange is, is it says that in Genesis 1, it says, for God created the heavens and the earth. But then it said that the spirit of God hovered. And then it, and then it says here that Jesus was there. What is that really showing you? It's really showing you this beautiful picture of the Trinity at work here. And people have a hard time with the Trinity of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you why you have a problem with it. It's because of a good reason. You're like, where does one end and the other begin? Where does his responsibility stop? And then where does this one take over? And where, why, why is this one the Father and this one the Spirit? And which jobs and which person and which, which, do you know why is it? Because they have no ego. <laughs> there is no pride in God. There is no ego in God. There's this beautiful, harmonious relationship. See, this is why you know God is love. Because God was love before you ever existed. You ever wondered that? Like, cause, cause the love means that you'd have to like give that love to somebody. So what was God doing before creation? God has always been love. That's why there's father, son, and always, if God was just this single entity, who was he loving before creation? There would have been nobody there. So you see this beautiful idea of father and son and Holy Spirit in perfect relationship, in perfect harmony, in perfect balance. And then he creates you. Not because he needs you, but because he desires you. And he desires to take the love that he has and then pour it out into all creation. And that's really what you see here in play here. And so Jesus is our creator. Now, let me tell you something else that this implies. That God is awesome. When you think about creation, if you really look at it, the only thing you conclude is that God is awesome and wonderful and amazing. As a matter of fact, I'll prove it to you. Watch this, watch this. Don't even think about earth. Think about all of God's creation and all of the universe. And listen to this. Comets have vapor trails that are up to 10,000 miles long. And if you could capture all that vapor and put it into a bottle, the amount of vapor actually present in the bottle would take up less than one cubic inch of space. That don't even make no sense. But what? Saturn's rings are 500,000 miles in circumference, but only one foot thick. The star in Terrace is 60,000 times larger than our sun. And if the sun were the size of a softball, then this, this star would be the size of a house. That's a big star. Watch this. There's another star known as LP327186. It's called a white dwarf. It, this is crazy. It is smaller than the state of Texas. And yet it's so dense that if one cubic inch of it were brought to earth, it would weigh more than 1.5 million tons. That's dense. If you ever looked at your husband, you're like, God, it's so dense. This is more dense. Watch this and watch this one. Let's look at the earth. There are more insects in one square mile of rural land than there are human beings on the entire earth. Watch this. Bees make their own air conditioning. When the weather gets hot and it threatens to melt the wax in the hive, one group of bees will go to the entrance of the hive and another will stay on the inside. And then they flap their wings all together, making a cross breeze that pulls the hot air out of the hive and then draws cool air inside. What? Okay, last one, just because it's cool. A single human chromosome contains 20 billion bits of information. You want to know how much that is? This is how much it is. If it were written in ordinary books in an ordinary language, it would take about 4,000 volumes. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God is a great and glorious creator that does weird, strange things that don't make any sense. Just because he's awesome. 
like to sit around in heaven and be like, I'll just do that. I'll just do that. That'll be really cool. Thousands of bits of information in one little chromosome. I'm telling you what, because because what this shows you is this, is that you have a great and glorious creator. See, when you have information locked into your DNA code, it's called programming. When you see this, this is what begins to obliterate these ideas of evolution is because, well, who put all that information in there? And how did all that? Because if you ever found something that was a program, you would have to assume that there was a programmer. Like God is the ultimate computer programmer. Putting information into strands of DNA so that you make sure that you've got blue eyes or brown eyes. It's just cool. It's just, I just want you to know God is your great and glorious creator and he loves you. So you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Let's keep going. So not only is he the creator, but then the apostle Paul is making sure that he, he really gets onto them. It's about this idea of preeminence because what they were trying to do is take Jesus and bring him down. He goes, don't you dare do that. Don't you bring Jesus down. He is preeminent. just means really, really, really important. Preeminent means Jesus is before all of the most important things that you could ever think about. So whatever is important to you, Jesus is before that. And that's what it really means to pre- be preeminent. And so he goes, I just want you to know Jesus is preeminent. And so there's this idea, check this out. Leonardo da Vinci, when he was, when he was painting The Last Supper, he brought in his friend and he said, tell me what you think so far. He wasn't quite finished with it yet. And he said that when he looked at the picture that the friend said, oh man, I love how the cup is the most beautiful cup. And it really is the centerpiece of all of the painting. And Leonardo was mad. And so he literally went and took it and wiped away the cup. And this is what he said. He said, nothing in my painting shall attract more attention than the face of my master. That's preeminence. It means nothing gets in the way, nothing distracts, nothing comes before Jesus is preeminent. And he was trying to communicate to these people, don't take Jesus and put him down. Jesus is not your homeboy. Don't bring him down. Jesus is not this uh, nice religious man. Don't bring him down. Jesus is not a spiritual guru. Don't bring him down. He is preeminent. He is whatever you think is important. He's before and above that, he uses the word idea of supremacy. This is what Jesus is. He is preeminent. Last one is this, and we'll, we'll start to wrap up here, is that Jesus is our reconciliation. So at the end here, he starts to work towards this idea. It says, for God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him. This idea of, ever say fullness. Again, what he's addressing is, is that the fullness was a word that the Gnostics used as the in-between state between us and God. And he was, and they were saying that Jesus was the plural, and, and, and this word plumora. And he was like, no, 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 no. It's not that Jesus is in that. He goes, God was pleased to have all of the plumora inside of that. Like, it, no, no, no. It's Jesus. He's above all. He's the most important. And through Jesus, he was going to reconcile to himself all things. Everybody say reconcile. See, now, if you notice, the first two really kind of have to do with this idea of how we relate to Jesus, right? He's God. He's the image of God. He's the firstborn over all creation. The second two, they kind of deal with something a little bit different. They, they kind of deal with like how we respect and revere him. So we want to revere him as creator and as pre- preeminent. But the last one, it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus necessarily as much as it has to do with how we see ourselves Because of Jesus. See, I just need you to know this. Is that as you put your trust in Jesus, you are reconciled to God. 
you are you're reconciled. You're put back together with. You're made right with. You're forgiven. God has made you right and one. And so this is the idea of reconciliation. Or we could think of it like this. When you think about how, why, why would God forgive me? It's because he wants you to be reconciled back to him. Which is amazing because some of you are so hung up on your past or your guilt or your sin or whatever. And it prevents you from getting to God, which is so backwards. Because what you have to think about is this, is that every time God forgives you, what he's in essence saying is this. My relationship with you is more important than the rule that I created. Let me say that again. Every time God forgives you, he's saying our relationship is more important than the rule that I created. Think about it. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Every time you've ever forgiven your child, why did you do that? Why? Because you knew your relationship with them was more important than the rule that they had broken. And God's trying to reconcile you back. He's trying to forgive you. He's trying to bring you into right relationship with them. I, I, I read the most interesting story. It was about a guy named um, Regals. He had the nickname Wrong Way Regals. And it's got one of the most famous, if you're a college football person, you probably know the story. It's a famous college football story. So in 1929, New Year's Day, it was the bowl game. It was the Rose Bowl. Georgia Tech versus Berkeley, right? And in this game, there's this guy, and he was a good player. And again, his name was Regals. He was such a good player. He had been named like all team this and all state this. He was a really, really good player. But in the game, there's a fumble. And he scoops up the ball. And when he gets the ball, he gets hit sideways and he spins. But then he doesn't really know where he is. So when he takes off running, he runs 65 yards in the wrong direction. And his whole team is like, no, stop. What are you doing? The other team is like, yes, keep going. The quarterback, who's like super fast, runs him down and tackles his own player on the three-yard line. He had no idea. Now, the University of Cal Berkeley had been really, really good. They'd won multiple titles leading up to this. He was a great player. They were supposed to win this game. Because of this play, the other team gets a safety and ends up winning the game 8-7. to seven. He was known for the rest of his life as wrong way regals. I tell you that story because some of us, what we do is, is we look at our own lives and we only see Jesus through the lens of our own mistakes. And we ask, well, how can God ever, and why would God ever forgive me? And why would God ever want me? And then we just look at ourselves for the rest of our life through this lens of our own failure, of our own mistakes. Hey, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night thinking about that incredible mistake that you made? You ever wrestled with it? You ever thought about it? You ever been labeled? You ever had somebody label you in your life according to your failure? And now you can see this is why God is wanting to redefine who you are. You are reconciled to God. Because here's the deal. The two most important things in our life is this. Number one is this, is how do I view God? Like, how do I see God? But the second most important thing in life is this, is how do I believe God sees me? The way God sees you is incredibly valuable. The way God sees you is loved. The way God sees you is worthy. I'll prove it to you. When I was a kid, I used to collect baseball cards. Anybody into baseball cards? I think that's an old thing of the past now. But I loved collecting baseball cards. And there was a book called The Beckett. 
and what you could do is, is you would take your car. I had all of Ken Griffey Jr.'s rookie cards. You can tell how old I am now. So you, you would look at, and I, you could look up in the Beckett, which was this book that was a price guide, and you could see, oh, it's the 19, da, 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 and it's the, the Duras rated rookie, Ken Griffey. And I would like, look, dad, look at how much this card is worth now. And he taught me something really profound. He goes, Todd, it's not worth that much. I'm like, yes, it does. Beckett said so. The book doesn't lie, dad. And he goes, trust me, son, that's not how much it's worth. And I'm like, well, fine. How much is it worth then? He goes, remember, it's only worth as much as somebody is willing to pay for it. Now, as a 10-year-old, that does not mean much. You still believe Beckett. But as you get older, you realize, okay, I get what dad was saying, that something is only worth what somebody else is willing to pay for it. That's it. It doesn't matter what the book says. If you put your home on the market and you put a price tag on it, it doesn't matter what price tag. You're only going to get what somebody is willing to pay you for it. I want you to know that the way God sees you is so incredibly valuable, so incredibly worthy, so incredibly important and special. That Jesus, the thing that is before everything else that's important in this world, Jesus, the very image of who God is, Jesus comes to earth to redeem, to ransom, to reconcile you. Your value and worth is so incredible. And I need you to see yourself that way. I need you to see God as the wonderful creator and the preeminent. The image of who God is. That's what I need you to say. But I need you to know this. I need you to know what your worth is. Because God has determined your worth when he paid that price. When he, when he went to the cross, he said, you're worth it. I'll give my life for yours. That's how much you're worth. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today? So before Paul corrects anything or teaches anything or encourages anything, he says, let me pray for you. I want to pray for you. But let me just tell you about God. Because if you'll see God as this amazing and wonderful creator, if you'll see God as Jesus and this amazing person, if you will see God as the most important thing above all other important things, if you'll do that, you can actually get everything else right in life. If you don't get that right, everything else is going to be a mess. Because once you get that right, you realize how important you are in the eyes of this great creator. So if you're in here today and you say, man, I just know that I need to connect to God. I need to make God preeminent in my life. I need to make God the most important thing in my life. I need that so that God would redeem and reconcile and make me right and make me whole. If you're in here today, you say, you know what? I want to be made right with God. Then on the count of three, I want you to raise your hands. This is your way of saying, God, I want to know you. I want to acknowledge you. I want you active in my life. On the count of three, I want you to slip your hand up in the air. One, two, three, and slip your hand up in the air. Yeah, 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 yeah. For some of us, maybe God is there, and we, we, maybe we've been believing in God, but he hasn't been preeminent in our lives. And it's time to say, God, I put you first above everything else that's important in my life. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. So let's do this. Let's pray this prayer out loud. Everybody, we're going to pray it together so we can hear where they're Everybody say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Change my heart. Help me to know you. Help me to see you as you are. Help me to put you first above all things. Help me to walk with you. 
Help me to know who I am because of you. I thank you, Lord, that you came, that you died, that you rose again for me. It's in your name that I pray. And we all said amen and amen. Yeah, give the Lord a big hand clap this morning. Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv.